You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And let's begin with a word of prayer before we take a look at this text. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ to us in giving us salvation and life. We thank you today for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection from the grave, and all that that has secured for us and means for us. We thank you for your word, which to us is very clear, and it is the means by which we might know you and know salvation and know life. So we thank you for your word and pray that now as we look at it, as we study it, that you would impress these truths upon our heart and give us grace, O oh God, not only to understand your word, but to obey it. And may you be pleased and may you be glorified with our time that we spend here in it. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that there was a thematic connection between these two events that are in John chapter 2, the miracle in Cana of Galilee, the turning of water into wine, and then the cleansing of the temple. And I said there is a, a connection between the two um, in, the, in its theme. There are similarities between the two signs or two events, if you will. And I kind of asked you to put that away in the back of your mind to be thinking about it and pondering over what that might be, and I kind of alluded to it a couple of weeks ago. And now having looked at the miracle in Cana and having looked at the cleansing of the temple, it's probably time now to sort of connect the two if you haven't already seen the the thematic connection between those two events. They are similar in a number of different ways, but I think there are really two things that kind of stand out. First of all, first of both of those events are signs in the sense that both of those events signify something about Jesus. They point to something about Jesus. The miracle in Cana of Galilee signifies his role, his power, uh, his position as the creator of all things. When John says in John chapter 1, by him all things were created, without him nothing was made that was made. John chapter 2 is an illustration of that, his ability to control and transform elements just by an act of his will, not even speaking or touching them, just an act of his will to change water into wine demonstrates that he is the one who created all things and without whom nothing has come into being that came into being. The the cleansing of the temple signified his role as the divine son and his authority to act on behalf of the Father as God in the temple of God. It was a demonstration not only of of his power, but as his position as the son of God, as the king of Israel, as the messenger of the covenant, as the Messiah. That event pointed to his messianic credentials. So both events, the wedding, the miracle at the wedding, and the cleansing of the temple signify something about Jesus. But they're even closer when you start to look at what is present in each one of those events. At In each one of those events, Jesus took something that was common, impure, and ordinary, and transformed it into something that was uncommon, or, yeah, uncommon, pure, and extraordinary. In the event with the wedding in Cana of Galilee, see, I've got all these, I've got two events in my mind that I'm trying to keep track of here so that I don't get done with this and have a big train wreck in your mind. 
At the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus took something that was associated with impurity, that is the water for purification, for the Jewish ritual purification. It was common, it was ordinary, it was impure, and he transformed it into something that was uh, not as common, that is wine, something pure, something for joy, something for celebration, something above and beyond that which was just the ordinary wine. At the cleansing of the temple at Jerusalem, Jesus walked into a situation which had become basically common, crass commercialization of a holy thing, and he purified it and transformed it into something that was pure and sanctified and sacred. He transformed something in both of those events. Now, you won't have to read very far before you will read in, before you'll get into somebody who would say, uh, this represents that and this thing represents the other thing, and they will begin to try and connect all kinds of dots and build all sorts of speculative theological inventions on the similarities between the two. I think it is appropriate for us to observe the similarities, and with that we have to step back and say there's obviously similarities between those two events, but I don't think we can build any theology on it. We stay away from allegory. Now last week, when we talked about the cleansing of the temple, there was a bunch of questions that were sort of rolling around in my mind, and I thought they're probably rolling around in everybody else's mind as well. And I didn't have time last week to answer these questions, And I don't have time this week to answer these questions either, but I'm going to because I don't want them kicking around in your head and you wondering what the answers to these are. So here's the first question that was kind of rolling around in my head in connection with the cleansing of the temple. Is Jesus an anti-capitalist? I mean, he went into the business section of the temple and cleaned out all of these money changers, all of these guys who are making profit off the buying and selling of animals. Is that an evidence that Jesus was opposed to the buying and the selling of animals and the making of money through exchanging currency and the making of money? Was Jesus in there on some sort of a messianic screed against the animal cartel or the OPEC of his day, the organization of people exchanging currency? And did he go in there with the intention of cleaning house because the animal cartel was not properly unionized and they should have been and the money exchangers were not... Um, providing enough medical insurance for their employees. And so Jesus, hoping to usher in some sort of socialist utopia, went in to drive out all the greedy businessmen. Is that what's going on? He said, that's a silly question to try and answer. It really is, but I can guarantee you, guarantee you, that somewhere today, in some church, in this nation, or in this world, somebody is preaching from the very same text of Scripture that we're looking at, and they're using it as evidence that Jesus was anti-capitalist and anti-big business. Is that what was going on? Was he just simply on a, some sort of a messianic rant and screed against big business, big animal, big money exchangers? Was Jesus objecting to the business that was going on? What was he objecting to? The location in which the business was going on. If this had been happening outside the temple, which it was, he wouldn't have touched anything. Had this temple remained sacred, and been, being, being used to fulfill its God-given intention, Jesus wouldn't have been indignant at all. We don't read anything in Scripture of Him going down into the business sector of Jerusalem and causing a ruckus and trying to drive out all the businesses. He didn't do that. What Jesus objected to, what He was indignant over, was not the buying and selling of animals. And it wasn't people making money off the buying and selling of animals. And what He was indignant to was not the exchanging of money. He was indignant to it being done inside the temple. Because they had taken something that was holy was God-ordained, was intended to direct people's attention to God, and it turned it into a, a yard sale, a bazaar, a garage sale for animals, an exchanging of currency. And it became a marketplace instead of a, a sacred place that it should have been. 
So question number two. Somebody calls you up during the week and says, hey, I don't have time to come over this week, and I know that you're selling eggs. Could you bring some eggs to the church this Sunday, and you bring the eggs, and I'll give you a buck or two bucks or whatever a dozen eggs goes for, and um, we'll just exchange it there on Sunday. Or what about a bookstore in the lobby of the church? Or what about the church having a rummage sale or a spaghetti dinner to raise funds for a ministry in the church or a building program? Or what about a church uh, selling things in its lobby or having an event, hosting an event that they charge admission to? <gasps> what do we do about those things? Is that what we're talking about? That's not what we're talking about. You know why that's not what we're talking about? Because we don't have a temple today. You and I are the temple and buildings, as you and I know, as this whole church knows, are utterly irrelevant to the location in which the people have got meat. This is our fourth location while we're building a new facility. You, you, you can't defile a building by an activity that goes on on a Sunday morning. The buying and selling of eggs, and I'm not picking on egg sellers, whoever you might be. I'm not picking on that in particular. But anything, whatever it might be, a book or a t-shirt or whatever, I'm not picking on anybody in particular. But that's not what's being discussed here. You could come in here and exchange money for an item or something that you're selling or you're meeting somebody and you're exchanging something or trading something. And you can do that without prostituting the worship service or detracting from the worship service or distracting people from what the true intention should be. And you do that all the time. So that's not what's being addressed. I had once had somebody go off on a, on a rant against me because we as a church had sold something in, in the lobby or out front or behind the back table or whatever it was in exchange for something or because we were providing a service and asking people to pay admission to an event that was costing us money and they went off on us saying that's that's the cleansing of the temple. Jesus was here, he'd drive you out. Well, that's not what's being discussed. Third question, and this popped into my mind just because I'm one of these curious individuals. Why didn't Jesus do this earlier? This was not the first year that the animal sales and the money exchanges had gone on inside the temple at Passover. Why didn't he do it the previous year? Certainly, Jesus had, from the time he was 12, had gone to the temple every year with his family, with his father Joseph and his brothers, had arrived in Jerusalem, much like he did now, to celebrate and observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why didn't Jesus the previous year go in and cleanse the temple? Was he not indignant the previous year? What do you think? Was he indignant the previous year? He certainly would have been, but why didn't he go in and cleanse the temple that year? The answer is in chapter 2, verse 4, and we've already looked at it. His hour had not yet come. There was a timetable in which the God the Father wanted Him to reveal His glory, to reveal His ministry, to reveal His authority to the nation and to the people. And the previous year, that time had not yet come. And Jesus operated on the Father's timetable, not on His own and not on anybody else's. But now, having been announced as the Messiah of Israel by John the Baptist, having been baptized as the Messiah by John the Baptist, having been recognized as the Messiah by His disciples, having performed His first miracle and revealed His glory, Now the time had come for Jesus to confront the religious leaders of the nation. And that's exactly what he did in John chapter 2. Jesus came into the temple and he drew the line in the sand, as it were, and said to them, this is who I am and this is what I am about and this is who you are and this is what you are about and you and I are on opposite sides of this line. It was a very bold confrontation, a very bold move, and the significance of what Jesus did that day in cleansing the temple was not lost on the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They understood exactly what he was saying. They understood exactly what the implications of his actions were. And that is why they reacted the way that they did in verses 18 through 22. And that's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Verse 18 to 22, their reaction to what Jesus did. Look at verse 18. The Jews then said to him, 
And we'll just read, we'll read all of these verses here at the beginning. The Jews then said to him, it took, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So immediately after Jesus had cleansed the temple, the Jews then confront him and say to him, show us a sign for the authority to do what you have just done. Give us a sign that shows us you have the authority to do this. Now, the Jews is not a reference to the crowd. Remember, I mentioned last week that probably most of the people who were milling about in the temple that day would have been fine with what Jesus did. The majority of them would have had no problem. They would have seen what Jesus did as an expression of their own righteous indignation over this travesty that was happening inside the courtyard of the temple. Everybody, the crowd, the worshipers, the people who show up, knew they were being exploited, knew they were being taken advantage of. They knew it was corruption, and they knew that the high priest was behind all of it. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, he wouldn't have gotten any sort of kickback or any sort of resistance from the crowd. The Jews, throughout the Gospel of John, is usually a reference, and John uses it to refer to the religious leaders of the nation. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the scribes, the people who were the religious leaders of the nation, who represented the Jews, in Jesus' confrontations with them, John refers to them as the Jews. So the Jews here probably refers to maybe the temple police, who showed up on the scene having witnessed all of this, and then they confront Jesus, and notice they don't arrest him. Or the Jews may be a reference to the Sanhedrin, or maybe a delegation from both. Some temple police with some scribes and some priests and some Pharisees who show up on the scene, and they say to him, show us a sign for the authority to show us as your authority for doing these things. The Jews were constantly asking Jesus for a sign. And what they wanted here was a sign from him, some sort of a miracle, as evidence that he had the authority to do what it was that he had just done. I want you to notice something. They don't arrest Jesus, nor do they argue with him about the appropriateness of what he did. Do you notice that? They don't come up to Jesus and say, hey, what you've done is completely inappropriate. It's against the law. It's a violation of the Old Testament law. What you have done here is the wrong thing to do. What we were doing was the right thing. They don't even enter into a discussion with Jesus as to the appropriateness of the action that he took, nor as to the appropriateness of them selling animals in the temple. Because they knew it was wrong, the crowd knew it was wrong, Jesus knew it was wrong, it was evident to everybody that it was the wrong thing to do, and it was evident to everybody that what Jesus did was the right thing to do. So they don't question him about the appropriateness of his actions. What they do ask for is a sign. Give us a sign to show us your authority for doing these things. Now, last week I told you that when Jesus cleansed the temple, he was acting as the Son of God, as the rightful Son of God, the greater Son of David, the Messiah, who was God the Son in human flesh, as authority to act on behalf of his Father as God in the temple of God. And he was, usurping is the wrong word, he was presuming authority and demonstrating his authority, that's better, over the priests, over the priesthood, over the worshipers, over the religious life of the nation, over the people who came to the temple, over every other authority structure in the temple and outside of the temple, over the whole nation, he was presuming and demonstrating his authority to do what he did. And they understood that. And he was acting not only as the Son of God, but also as the King of Israel. He was doing something that only a king had authority to do. Remember in the Old Testament, the corruption inside the temple and a new king, a good king, would take the throne and he would clean it out. Cast out all the idols. 
purge the nation, purge the temple, and reinstitute divine and right biblical worship in the temple. Jesus was acting as a king. And he was also acting as the messenger of the covenant. Remember we looked at Malachi chapter 3 where Jesus in coming in and cleaning out the temple fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that the Lord would suddenly come to his temple and purge the sons of Levi and reinstitute biblical worship. This was just a preview of what was to come. And all the religious leaders, the Jews who were there that day, they watched what Jesus did. And this is what they said to themselves. That's Malachi chapter 3. That's the role that the Messiah. That's something the Messiah will do. He is obviously taking upon himself a messianic office, a messianic authority, and a messianic responsibility. And the Jews believed, and they knew from the Old Testament, that when the Messiah came, that he would perform signs and wonders and do miracles. So what are they asking? In one sense, a very appropriate question. Since you have just done what the Messiah should do, and since you have just taken upon yourself messianic authority and messianic actions, give us a messianic sign to demonstrate that you have the authority as the Messiah to do this. That's the essence of their question. What are you going to do to show us your credentials for doing what you have just done? You have just assumed a messianic function. Give us a messianic sign to show us you're the Messiah. They don't argue about the appropriateness of it. What they want is a demonstration that he is who he is assuming and acting as. And that is namely the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant. The Jews were always asking for a sign from Jesus. In John, sorry, Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, this generation's a wicked generation, always seeking after a sign. Matthew chapter 12, they came up to him and said, teacher, show us a sign. Give us a sign. Perform a trick. And see, what the Jews knew and what you and I, what you and I know from scripture is that signs were not just tricks that people did, parlor tricks to get attention. Signs pointed to some reality beyond themselves. Signs were an evidence of credentials. It was the authentication of the messenger and the message. The apostles did signs because it was an authentication of the messenger and of the message. Jesus did signs to show that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. It was evidence of his the credentials, that he was the Messiah and that he had the authority to do what he did. And that's what the Jews understood, and that's what they're asking for. When the Messiah shows up, he'll do signs. Show us a sign. If you show us a sign, we'll know you're the Messiah. But Jesus didn't show them a sign. Why not? Would they have believed had he done a sign? Would they have believed? They were always asking for a sign, but had Jesus performed a sign for them, would they have suddenly fallen down and said, oh, you are the Messiah, you're the King of Israel, you're the Son of God, we will worship you. Would they have done that? How do I know that? They wouldn't have done it. Turn over to John chapter 11 real quick. I want to show you two quick passages, and then we'll be back to John chapter 2. John chapter 11. After the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, a public miracle, one that whose fame began to spread throughout all the region around Jerusalem, verse 47 of John chapter 11 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. If if we continue letting him go on, they said, he will gain the respect and the admiration of everybody. Then there will be a revolt and the Romans will come in and destroy us and take away our nation and our place and our temple and destroy it all. Well, we can't have that. What are we going to do? We will instead kill him. And that's the plot that they hatched. 
Verse 51, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Flip over to chapter 12, verse 37. Verse 37, so, so though he had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing in him. Always wanted a sign, but when he did perform a sign, when he did show them the evidence, what did they do? Well, we'll kill him for that. They wouldn't have believed. And Jesus knew that they wouldn't believe. And so he gives to them instead a very cryptic saying. Look in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. A very enigmatic, sort of mysterious, cryptic sign. The Jews didn't get it at first. Like they didn't get it ever. The disciples certainly didn't get it at first either. John says it wasn't until after the resurrection that they, now we get it. Now we understand what's going on. Now we get what he was saying. But that was three years later. In that statement that Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. There are three words that have double meanings. And this is where the confusion with the Jews came in. The first word, destroy, it meant to tear down or to tear something apart. It's used in Acts 27 of the ship that broke up that Paul was on when the when the, they had the shipwreck, it's used of the breaking apart of the ship. It's also used in Ephesians chapter 2 of tearing down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. It means to destroy something, to tear it down. It was used in Jesus' day of tearing down or destroying a building. It was also used in Jesus' day of destroying a body. The second word that has a double meaning is the word temple. Destroy this temple. Now, Jesus could have used a Greek word, heron, which only had one meaning, and that meant the literal physical temple, a building. But he uses instead a word, naos, which has two different meanings. One, a literal physical building, or it could be used of a body in which the Spirit dwells. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, he uses that word. This means that your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So the word can be used to speak of a literal physical temple, like the one in which they were standing, or the word could be used to speak of a body. The third word, I will raise it up, That word meant either to reconstruct a building or to resuscitate an individual. Now, they're standing in the temple. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. And fresh in their mind is the subject of the temple and what Jesus has just done in the temple and who it is who exercises authority over the temple and who it is that acts as the Messiah and God in the temple. And Jesus has just called the temple his father's house. And then he says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. So what do the Jews think he's talking about? With all of the double meanings for all of those words, they think he's speaking in a very literal sense. Destroy this temple in which we stand, all of the walls around us, and in three days, I will rebuild it. I will reconstruct it. But that's not what Jesus meant, is it? It was a very cryptic saying, a very cryptic phrase that Jesus gave. They didn't get the meaning of it, and Jesus intentionally did it that way so that they would not understand I told you a couple weeks ago, there are times when Jesus said things in order to reveal truth to some people and conceal truth from other people. The parables were designed to do just that. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, he said to the disciples. But to those who also heard the parables who were not believing, they didn't get it. The parables were designed to reveal truth to some and conceal truth from others. This phrase, this sentence that Jesus uttered, was intentionally designed to reveal truth to some and to conceal truth from others. It was designed to conceal the truth from the Jews who were questioning him because of the hardness and the wickedness of their heart. 
They knew that what they were doing was wrong, and rather than repent in the presence of their Messiah, who had just single-handedly cleaned out the temple, instead, they hardened their heart and tried to catch him on a technicality. Give us some authority for doing what you just did. And knowing the wickedness of their heart, Jesus concealed the truth from them. Now, if you don't think that his intention was to conceal truth, then I ask you this. Why then did he say it the way he did? Why didn't he say it's this to them? Look, you are going to kill me. You're going to destroy me. And you're going to kill me. And after you kill me, three days later, I am going to be resurrected from the grave right in the presence of Jerusalem. Why didn't Jesus say that? That would have eliminated all doubt from what he meant. But he didn't say that. Instead, he uttered a very cryptic, very mysterious phrase that the Jews never, ever really understood. Three years later, when Jesus was on trial, do you remember the accusation that they brought against him? Matthew chapter 26, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Is that what Jesus had said? No, he didn't say, I will destroy the temple of God. Or nor did he say, I am able to destroy the temple of God. He said, you will destroy, not I will destroy, you will destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And Mark in his gospel, chapter 15, says even then the witnesses did not agree with each other as to what Jesus had actually said. Mark records one of the other witnesses who said, Jesus said, I will re, I, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will build another made without hands. And that's not what he said either. And then when he was hanging on the cross, Matthew chapter 27 says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. They brought this statement, this episode in John 2, they brought it out against him as an accusation at the trial, and they hurled abuse at him on the cross. And later on in Acts chapter 6, they brought the same accusation against Stephen, saying that when they had put, pulled him in front of the council, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the, alter the customs that have been handed down by Moses. But is that what Jesus had said? No. But they took what Jesus said and totally missed it, totally missed the point, and they tried to use it against him at his trial, they hurled that as abuse against him on the cross. And then years later, about two years later, they started to charge Stephen with that. They brought it up against Jesus in hopes of getting him crucified. And they brought it up against Stephen in hopes of getting him stoned. They never did get it. Eventually, the disciples did get it when they finally figured out what he was speaking of. But the fact that the Jews never got his evidence from their reply to Jesus, hey, 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 it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it up three days? That was utterly inconceivable to them. Let me give you a little bit of history on the temple so that this statement that Jesus makes would make a little bit of sense to you. The temple in which Jesus was standing when he said this was not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was built by Solomon. That's why it's called Solomon's temple. What a coincidence that is. Solomon was the son of David. Remember, it was on David's heart to build the temple, but God didn't allow David to build the temple because David's hands had shed so much innocent blood, so much bloodshed and warfare with, from David. So God said, not you, but your son Solomon, when he becomes king, will build me a temple. So David made all the preparations for the temple, raised the money, put everything together, building plans and all of that, so that when he died, Solomon could build it. Solomon did build it, and, Sol and it was called Solomon's Temple. Very grand, majestic, amazing, probably one of the most amazing buildings ever built in the ancient world, Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem 
and sacked Jerusalem and took Judah, the whole southern kingdom, captive. And it was at that time Jeremiah got to see it. That's why we have the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah describes the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Babylonian invasion. So Jeremiah got to see it. And Daniel, remember, was one of the youths taken captive to Babylon when Babylon came in, destroyed the temple, utterly, utterly wiped it out. That was in 586 B.C. Well, toward the end of that 70-year captivity during Babylon, toward the end of that, Cyrus, the, the Mede, became uh, king in Babylon because they conquered the Babylonian Empire. And then Cyrus had this megalomaniacal idea that God had wanted him to build the temple. Well, God had already promised that he would rebuild the temple through a man named Cyrus years earlier. Wow, amazing how prophecy works. God had done that, promised that it would be Cyrus, and so Cyrus issued the decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple, which they did. They did that with the help of Joshua and Zerubbabel and two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who were there to sort of encourage the people in the building. So they built what was called the post-exilic prophet. Post meaning after, exilic meaning exile, or after the exile. They came back, the second, that was the second temple, the post-exilic temple. But the second temple was much, much smaller than Solomon's temple. Much smaller, not nearly as ostentatious, not nearly as glorious. It was sort of a, a shadow of its former self. And that went on all the way until about 20 B.C., when Herod the Great decided that he would launch this massive rebuilding, reconstruction, and renovation project in the temple. That was in 20 B.C. They say, how nice of that, how nice of Herod that was, right? He just must have been the greatest guy in the world to build the Jews a massive temple like that. No, Herod was a very wicked and cruel ruler, and the Jews hated him, and it was no secret to anybody that the only reason Herod was building the Jews a temple was to satisfy the Jews and to sort of curry favor with the Jews. And he had a lust for building, and Herod wanted to build a building in Jerusalem by which everybody would always remember him, sort of a memorial to Herod. Well, it worked because the third temple was called Herod's Temple. So when Jesus stands in the temple in 27 B.C., it had been 46 years since Herod had started rebuilding that construction project, and while Jesus was standing there, the rebuilding still wasn't done, sort of like our facility. 46 years in the making, a massive building project that just took forever And it was still going on while Jesus was standing in the temple. Thus the Jews said, it has taken us 46 years to build this, and you're going to do it in three days. There's a little bit more history for you. The temple, Herod's building project, wasn't even completed until 63 A.D., an 82-year building project. And it was used for seven years before the Romans came in and wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed it in fulfillment to Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left upon another on the Temple Mount. So now you understand why they're utterly confounded by this. They had watched for almost two generations this building project go on in the Temple. And they think that what Jesus is claiming is the ability to build it in three days. And they raised the false accusations against Him. They thought it was ludicrous. But John, lest you and I misunderstand what he's saying, says Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And they didn't even get it until after the resurrection. That's when John was able to say, now we understand what Jesus was saying. He wasn't speaking of the physical temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, two things I want you to notice that are important. First of all, notice that Jesus promised a bodily resurrection. You can't avoid that in the text, can you? It was a bodily resurrection. There are liberals, probably many of the same, who right now are trying to use this passage to say Jesus was anti-capitalist. There are liberals who say it really doesn't matter whether it was bodily resurrection. All that really matters is that it was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. The body could have still been in the grave, but what's really important is that it lives today in our hearts and that we feel good about it and that it makes us warm and fuzzy and gives us purpose and meaning in life. 
Whether it was really a resurrected body or not is really not important. Whether it was historical is irrelevant. What's really important is that it was a spiritual resurrection. That is just baloney. Because if it wasn't a bodily resurrection, it wasn't a resurrection at all. And it doesn't matter if I'm warm and fuzzy inside. If his body's still in the grave, listen, then death has not been defeated. The grave still has a sting to it. And Jesus is a liar. He promised a bodily resurrection. He promised to the Jews that the sign would be his bodily resurrection. And he delivered a bodily resurrection. Second thing, do you notice that Jesus promised to raise himself from the dead? Oh, by the way, on the bodily resurrection thing, one extra one. No, no extra charge for this. Use this passage next time your Jehovah's Witnesses stroll through your neighborhood and show up at your doorstep because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave in his body. They believe that the body evaporated into gases and that Jesus was resurrected as a spirit creature and that today he exists as a spirit creature. So drop this one on them. Watch what they do. It is really fun because even in their Bible, which they have, it says the same thing as the Bible that you hold in your lap and they can't get around it. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And so then you can ask him, is he a liar? Or did he raise his body from the dead? So, second, notice that Jesus promised that he would raise himself from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is always portrayed in Scripture as an act of God. This is an allusion to the Trinity. Because it says in Scripture, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, that the Father raised Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And it says here in John chapter 2 that Jesus raised himself from the dead. He says in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And Jesus here in John chapter 2 says, I will raise up my own body from the dead, from the grave. Bodily resurrection. Now the Jews didn't get that. The disciples didn't get that for three years. When Jesus was raised, it says, then they believed the scripture. Which particular passage did they believe? We don't know necessarily because John doesn't highlight the particular passage. It would be nice if he quoted it, but you'll notice that he doesn't quote it. It may be that what John means by they believed the Scripture was simply a reference to all the Old Testament Scripture pertaining to the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would be passages like Psalm 16, which prophesied the resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 53, which spoke prophetically of the resurrection of Christ. It's talking about the servant who would die, and then the servant would do all of these things and would live and would rule and would reign. So it may be that when they finally got it, and wouldn't you like to be sitting at the table when they did that? I would love to have been sitting with the disciples when one of them said, Hey, do you remember that day when he cleaned house in the temple? And we were all standing around, not quite sure what was going to unfold. And the Jews came to him and said, Show us a sign. And he said, Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He was speaking of his resurrection. How could we be such doofuses? It was right there in front of us, The whole time. I'm somewhat encouraged by the reaction of the disciples and their inability to get something for three years. Because I look at myself as being a very thick individual in the head. And there are times when I know something that is true for a long period of time, and then suddenly, ever had this happen? Suddenly it all comes together and you say, Ah, now I get that. How long have I known that before I finally saw how it all fits together so wonderfully and so perfectly? That's the way it was with the disciples. Last thing I want you to notice in this passage is the profound note of irony. This whole scene is just thick with irony. Let me give you a couple of them. The Jews themselves, these ones who are standing in front of Jesus, they actually became the very means of bringing about the sign that they requested. 
Now follow this. He had cleansed the temple, and they said, give us a sign. And he said, I'll rise from the dead. In killing him, they actually became the means of bringing about the very sign that they had requested. These Jews killed Jesus. He resurrected, and they became the vehicles, the tools by which the sign that they requested was given to them. That's ironic. Here's an even thicker irony. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What temple was he speaking of? The temple of his body. What did they do? They destroyed the temple of his body. They killed him. The Jews did. The religious leaders of the nation killed their Messiah. And they destroyed his temple. In destroying his temple and in killing him, what they were doing, actually, because God was working all of this for good, what God was doing behind the scenes was offering a sacrifice for sins. The only perfect sacrifice, the full sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice, which is able to atone for sin. Bulls, goats, sheep, none of that could atone for sin. But God was offering us the sacrifice which would end all sacrifices. And in Jesus' death on the cross, He made all of the sacrifices obsolete. And the priest could go in year after year and keep offering all of those sacrifices, but one sacrifice had already been offered for all time in the person of Christ. And in His death, in their destruction of His temple, they offered the sacrifice which ended all other sacrifices and made the temple obsolete. And in killing their Messiah, they brought the judgment of God upon them in 70 A.D., which resulted in the destruction of their temple. Notice the irony. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They think he's threatening their temple. So they accuse him with threatening their temple and kill him. And in killing him, they assure the destruction of their own temple. Why? It's obsolete. It's no longer needed anymore. Through them, God offered up the sacrifice which put an end to the temple, put an end to the sacrifices, and everything from the moment of His death and resurrection, everything from that point forward that went on in the temple was utterly useless. Over. No need for it anymore. The veil was torn in two. Notice the irony. They threatened Him with, they accused Him of threatening their temple, and they acted out against Him to secure the interest of their temple, And that became the very thing that ended up destroying their temple. That's irony, isn't it? Uh, i got another one for you. One more, and then I promise we're done. And here's it. You ask a Jew in Jesus' day, where does God dwell? What would they say? In the temple. That's the dwelling place of God. That's where we meet with God. That's where God meets with us. That's the Shekinah glory. That's where the ark is. That's where the sacrifices happen. This is the center of the religious nation. God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. That's the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God. Now here was God in a temple, in their temple. And they missed it. Where was the dwelling place of God? Their temple. But here was their God in a human temple, a human body, standing physically in their presence, in their temple, And they missed it entirely. That's irony. Oh, the darkness and the hardness of the human heart when it is locked in unbelief. Amazing. God had shown up. John says, we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as Solomon had seen the glory of God in his temple, the Jews assumed that the glory of God was in the temple. And here the glory of God had shown up in the temple. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead they could see, and they missed God right in front of them. Instead, they said to him, you show us a sign to give us proof that you are who you are. 
and he had already done enough, and they were without excuse. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Again, we thank you that you have made yourself known in him, that you came here and your son took on a body and became flesh and dwelt among us, and that we beheld your glory. And Lord, we shudder at the sight of a hard heart which refuses to repent and turn from sin and recognize who Christ is. And may there be no heart here that is hardened like that, unrepentant and unwilling to turn. May you be glorified and pleased today, God, as you impress these truths upon our heart. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.